actually like recently subtweeted Taco Bell quarterly and someone fucking tagged them in my subtweet, like in the replies. Uh-huh. And I was just like, I think it was like a real test for me to be like, don't care what people think because like they have like, I don't know, 80,000 followers or something. And naturally like they replied and they were sassy and like other people were like hate replying to me. But I was like, no, you have to stand by it. They're fucking cringe. Like, just say it. But I didn't want them to, like, explicitly know. I just, like, find them so unbearable online. But I survived. So I felt proud of myself for, like, not giving any fucks. Now you suck it out like a champ. That made me so happy, too. I was like, this is, yeah, L's in an agitator mood already. Let's go. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Taco Bell quarterly has 80,000 followers on Twitter. Yes, because they were mentioned in a, like a glossy mag some at some point um and they got a ton of press for it. And so they've really just been like like ever since then they've been like leaning into it and making these like super cringe sincere writer tweets. Um which, like, I mean, yeah, I guess I understand some of what they're saying, but it's kind of like when you care more about um, the, the like, image that you're projecting as a lit mag rather than, like, the writers. Like, I don't know anyone that they've published or mm-hmm. what kind of writing that they even, like, create a platform for. All I know is they're cringe tweets like that's all i ever see so Mm -hmm. i was just like oh god it just makes me roll my eyes so hard but them making those kinds of tweets works really well for them they get a ton of like retweets and followers and stuff from it and people like people like that the mainstream writing world they really love that in the short term in the short term right the the yeah kelvin knows what i'm gonna say Oh, no, I, I was actually thinking about, I had a Scooby-Doo tweet blow up this morning, and I was like, what the fuck? This is gay. I, like, I don't care. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. need no. this in my life. Yeah. But like, yeah, the, the whole cringe, uh, see, I think that, well, my thoughts on cringe are complicated, because I feel like cringe overlaps a lot with sincerity, which I think is good, but yeah. not like, not the way that writers do it. Writers have this just it's just impossible for writers to be outside of career mode when they're on Twitter for even a second so they're just never human but like I think that what you're talking about you know how you said it was it was good for it's it's good for them in the short term Mm -hmm. I I believe this and maybe this is cope I don't know but I believe that if you take a slightly more difficult path where you you know upset people sometimes and you know you don't necessarily play the the game or whatever I just believe that life I mean life is very short but life is also very long and a lot of my favorite writers didn't really start kicking until they were in their 50s because I think that writing is very specifically uh sort of an art for older people because you necessarily have to have a lot to say that's why you yeah. get, you know, books like uh, that, like, I guess Brett Easton Ellis is a bad example because he made a whole career, but there's a lot of like Brett Easton Ellis clones who had that one less than zero book and then kind of didn't have anything else to say, which was at literally my problem. Like my first book coming out at 23 and then I'm kind of like, uh, 
mm-hmm. I'm out. Like I've, <laughs> I have no more life experience to talk about. So now, you know, 12 years later, I'm finally like, okay, you know, I've lived a little bit longer. Anyway, my point is, is that life is long and <clears throat> I'd rather not uh, sort of blow it on, I don't know, making a, I don't know anything about the Taco Bell quarterly, but just, you know, I mean, is that going to be what, what lasts? I don't know. Right. Yeah. I know what you mean. And I was wrong. They have like 24,000 followers, but, (laughs) but no, I know what you mean. I remember like the first time, sorry, I'm getting all literary on the anime talk, but um, I remember like uh, the first time I ran across Lydia Yuknovich, I kind of had that thought when I was like first starting out where I was like, I don't want to peak until I'm like 60, you know, like I want to really look at the long game of it and not worry too much about, the whole like quote unquote making it big thing now because that's really what happened with her too and then there's this other writer maria hornbacher she wrote her first memoir 23 um and it got really big but then she didn't write another book for like 10 years and then she wrote a book about bipolar disorder and some other stuff and then she hasn't written another book of you know at all since another 10 years she's just been like working on manuscripts and literally like shelving them and like just biding her time yeah. So. Lydia, Lydia is a great example because I bought, first of all, I bought Thrust yesterday. I'm super excited about that. Mm-hmm. And also, so Lydia was Rios's teacher in Portland. Like oh, Rio, yeah. uh, Rios would go to all the corporeal uh, meetings. And so, you know, we would hang out sometimes and she exudes a genuine uh, warmth. Like Lydia is mm-hmm. not, it's not cringe because it, she's just a very sincere person but that has to come with maturity I think Mm -hmm. I don't think you can get to that that point where you have that very kind of motherly energy right it's just it feels like she's everybody's mom right and that's that's even what Rio says she's like it's like my second mom yeah I know I did honestly you know yeah I did a workshop with her once too, where I got that feeling from her um, that she really is good at being attentive to everyone in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of that too, one thing that Lydia has that like, I think maybe other people who try to do the sincere thing where it comes off cringe is that like her memoir really is humbling in the sense that like she's been and done some fucked up shit, you know, like I'm pretty sure in chronology of water she talks about how she was drunk driving and like hit someone else with her car and it was terrible and that was like her rock bottom and Mm -hmm. i don't remember the details of it but it's one of those things where it's like i think you have to really accept that people are fucked up and do fucked up things whereas i think in some cases when it's when it's coming from like yeah that place of not having lived that kind of life experience then maybe it's, I don't know, you don't see people with as much nuance. And so it's so basic and surface level. Maybe that's why it feels cringe. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, I mean, it's all life. It's like, I think that that's why I'm on this tip right now of, you know, trying to almost go back to a, to like a childlike, sense of appreciation for things right i first got this idea i was listening to this podcast called contain which is really good if you haven't heard it but on contain uh barrett talks about uh you know the idiot like byung chul han's idea of the idiot or the retard right and just like kind of 
divesting yourself of all the the bullshit that you've accumulated as an adult and getting back to just being stupid and spazzing out and being a weirdo. You so That's, me. So it's exactly so me. So, so me. like like trying to do it in a genuine way, right? Like, you know, for me, it's going, it's just like things that I appreciated uh when I was younger like that's what this whole podcast is basically it's because when I was in high school I loved anime and Takashi Miike movies it's like why not just kind of go back to that because that's that's the closest like most and I think sincere thing I can do right now because I'm not uh I've, I've put on so many identities I, I don't know if I don't think Kelby can identify with this because he's been a real one from day one, (laughs) which is why I like him so much. Uh, But like, maybe you can't, I don't know, but it's like you try on different hats, you know, when you're on the, on the internet. And there was, when I was first on the internet, I was one of the unfortunate, because I'm 35. So like I had MySpace, I had a Zanga, I had all this kind of shit, right? Mm -hmm. And you grow up and you think that the internet is an extension of who you are. So you feel like it's a, it's like a vehicle for your authenticity. So you get really messy on the internet. And then you get to a certain point where you've, you know, gotten drunk and, you know, been an asshole on the internet. So I I was like, like, I'm going to be like a Buddhist monk, (laughs) not literally, but like, I'm going to be like a peace and light bringer on the internet. And it just was like the cringiest shit ever and now i'm kind of like balancing out where i'm like no i'm pretty fucked up and i'm annoying and people people largely don't like me but that's okay uh because it is what it is i guess Mm -hmm. yeah i understand what you mean i feel like maybe i've done a little bit of that too i remember like every time facebook shows me my memories from like 2010 or 2011 it's stuff where I'm just like god I can't even believe I used to type like that all caps Mm -hmm. and using punctuation like kind of stuff like that or like using particular like internet um colloquialisms that just people don't use anymore that kind of thing um like I'm trying to think I guess even how we use emojis, like, you know, XD for like laughing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And like those kinds <laughs> of things. I wish I could be more like specific and thinking about it. I think recently I posted a tweet that was like about Twitter that was like, hey, when do you post your tweets? Like that kind of thing. And I was just like, oh my God. Like the fact that like we even actively like thought about that at that time, I don't know. It makes me cringe at myself. Just what I delete the internet forever and go hide in a cabin it's always tempting to go kaczynski mode get a cabin start building a bomb start sending it to postal workers yeah you know, I've, ar- like, I've already done that though i feel so yeah. like over my cabin <laughs> life <laughs> you said you, who did you send a bomb to <laughs> oh no i didn't actually send a bomb to anybody but <laughs> government just so you know i've never mailed a bomb ever in my life I was going to say, um, they do some cuts here. <laughs> yeah, we're not putting that shit in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but even with, like, having done cabin life stuff, too, I don't know. It's interesting. I feel like I want to retreat, but I also feel like I've gotten some of the escape from society stuff out of my system. 
But maybe, you know what, though? Maybe I feel that way because I don't live in America anymore. Like, Mm. honestly, Mm -hmm. my mental health has been, in terms of, like, the day-to-day, has felt a lot better. I've almost felt like, because I'm not having this daily anguish with certain things, I'm like, damn, like, am I going to be able to, like, write about shit anymore? I've been having that thought Mm -hmm. recently. Mm -hmm. You do have to have that mental detachment, I think, is key. I've been feeling it. I've really been like uh, embracing the retard in a in a real genuine kind of way. Just getting like extra stupid lately, and it's great. Now I'm writing like a fuckload now too. Um, what What have you been doing to embrace that? Uh, enjoying stuff. I think is essential. Mm-hmm. This podcast has been like big in helping with that because having a family and being really busy like you know trying and surviving capitalist america or whatever like mm-hmm. i don't have time to only like consume so much and so especially when we got into like reading big long 700 page mangas or mm-hmm. going over like murakami's bibliography and shit and like watching all these movies I was like this is all I have time to do anymore as far as like consuming art is just this cool shit and and then we spend time talking about it and everything and uh so internalizing all of just only positive uh not positive in nature necessarily but like only having positive experience with art has been big Mm. and uh and with that being expiring I, I guess it's just like a chicken and the egg thing and a, and a snowball it's a chicken and an egg inside a snowball yeah rolling, rolling down the hill yeah that makes sense <laughs> I, I feel <laughs> like um just in the last couple weeks I've really been like committing to I only want to read like what I want to read because I think I spend so much time reading what people send me or um like I don't know I sometimes feel like I have a like a to be read pile that I have to go through and like recently I just I finally bought Uzumaki just to read like for myself Hell yeah! um I haven't started it yet because like yeah it's Speaking of 700 page, page mangas. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've recently just been like not reading newer books and that kind of thing. And I do feel like refreshed in my experience of art. Does that make sense? Like, um, yeah. So many times I'm reading books because I'm going to interview someone or something like that um but being like no I just want to read this like just for the enjoyment or watch this just for the enjoyment has been like I don't know yeah it's been like replenishing in a way and I haven't realized how far I've gotten away from that I think the thing about being on Twitter with or Facebook with other writers is that it makes you not want to write ever again because when you're a kid and you are journaling or I used to write little books on computer paper that were basically just movies that I liked. So I'd write like Jurassic Park or Indiana Jones, and it was doing something for the pure creativity of it. And then you become a writer and you have this idea in your head that you're going to make these cool things that make people 
feel the way that you felt when you watched cool movies or read cool books or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you, you start to be around other writers and it's somehow worse than working a, a, like a nine to five job. You know what I mean? Because like at a nine to five, mm-hmm. I used to work at Kirkland's in the mall, which is a, it's a home decor store. We'd sell paintings and stuff and mm-hmm. it's all very transactional and it's, it's retail. So you're stocking shelves and talking to customers, and, but it's not, what you care about but then you get around people whose whole thing you know I don't know if you've been to uh well of course you've been to cons right like you've been to AWP and stuff like that and I have actually to, never been I've never been to AWP I don't think I've actually ever been to a specific writer con the only thing I've been oh, to okay. is the Edinburgh International Book Fest but I didn't really right. like network either right. it was that's the word was, right you just used it that's the the, the networking the word yeah but like it just makes you hate it you're like I don't want to do this 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 is not what I wanted to do with I specifically wanted to be a writer because I didn't want to network I didn't want to climb ladders I just wanted to make cool shit and you find out that you have to you have to strike up some kind of balance because it is what it is but it can be depressing if it's if you you know if you're around it too much yeah I do think the thing that is hardest for me about the lit community is the I guess, uh, social climbing, like everyone is going to be invested in their career, but I do like sometimes sense that sense of like, people only want to talk to certain people or publish certain people because they seem cool or because like, yeah, they're like read a lot, like they're bigger than other writers or they'll give them more access to something else. Um, and I just find that also like, yeah, that does make me like dislike the lit world a lot like I've met a lot of wonderful people but I'm just kind of very glad that I like don't live like in New York in the New York City lit scene for example oh, I would just, kill like, myself I would rough. literally kill myself <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even saying that to be dramatic I would just I would hate my life and I wouldn't know what to do um yeah no I basically my goal with writing is to have I read this book a long time ago and it stuck with me. It was called The Long Tail. Um, oh, I know ahead. what you're talking about. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so The Long Tail is this idea that you could have a thousand true fans. And if you make a, enough little things, uh, those thousand people will provide you with a good income, basically. So if you have a, a, a thousand people who are willing to give you a hundred bucks a year, that's a hundred thousand before taxes. It's a hundred thousand dollars a year. And so it just becomes a matter of number one, finding those thousand people who fuck with you enough to actually give you that money and then making enough stuff to add up to a hundred thousand. Because I feel like uh, when I was younger, I used to think, damn, if I just make 40 K I'm good. I don't need mm-hmm. it. And now it's like, it's getting rough out there. Bread is expensive. So I'm feeling like a hundred thousand is the new 40,000, but like, what's up, buddy? Um, Speaking of expensive shit. I want milk. (laughs) (laughs) So fucking true, dude. Oh my God. It's so true. But yeah, no, that's pretty much it. It's just like, you know, people who have this, uh, the way you put it, social climbing idea of, you know, wanting to have, you know, 50,000 or a hundred thousand sales, it's all tied to this model of the big four, right. Of, you know, Mm -hmm. of having these huge audiences to, 
so that you can pay for everybody else, right? Which never really happens with fiction writers. But I've, yeah. I've, since the advent, that's why I read that book back when I started Broken River and it was like, okay, this is, this is the model, right? We get a thousand fans and we get them to spend a hundred dollars or like, I guess at the time it was $40 a year. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. It worked for a while until it, until it didn't. Yeah. Um, I don't remember where I heard that theory first, but I remember learning about that a while ago too. And I think that helped me feel better um, in terms of like trying to start my writing career as well. Like there, and there are times too, like when I get um, depressed a little bit where I'm just like, oh my God, like, am I going to break through this time or whatever? Like, I don't want to be full-time writer anymore in the sense that I'm like, I don't think that I'm going to make, you know, $50,000 a year writing books. I'd probably have to teach. And like, I've done that and I do love teaching, but doing it full time really eclipses like my creative brain in a way that's like really hard, you know, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. you're always going to struggle to balance it. So, you know, um, I'd rather have two different things like my writing world and like a job job. So I'm not like, yep. consistently, they're not consistently competing. Yep. But, you know, that, um, that's what Kelby does too. Kelby. Yeah. And then, then that's I'm so glad you said that too because I think that's huge splitting that shit up I'm about to put some resumes out for just a regular ass job it's been interesting doing the voice work and shit like on that too because it's like somewhat creative but I didn't make the shit like I'm just performing it or whatever and um you're doing like voiceover stuff yeah getting voiceovers and audiobook narration stuff like that has become uh become really my main thing lately for the past month or so that's cool it's it's cool and it's like uh it's different than when like i was just doing construction shit there was that hard separation and now it's like seeing words all day like I have to have writing days where it's like, this is my day to just do my shit. Cause if I look at anybody else's shit, it's just going to drain me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. When I was doing my workshop a lot, um, that's like kind of also why I stopped reading for fun because I was like reading and editing, you know, the same amount of words as like a full novel, like every week. Um, and so I think I just got, my brain was just like, I can't do this anymore. Like you get burnt out on processing words. So it makes sense. Yep. That's what I do right now with the editing. I just yeah. spent all day yesterday because I take care of Gus all, all week. And then the weekends I get my stuff done, but mm-hmm. I spent all day yesterday going through 50,000 words. And I was just like, fuck yeah like you really look at a book again (laughs) yeah you really hustled through it 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 can become really difficult I got burnt out on editing but recently um picked up one manuscript client and like it actually has felt really good though to get through it it's always nice when there's like a really good manuscript you're working on for someone else um yeah when that happens it's nice mm. yeah if you're busy it's it's not so frequent (laughs) yeah yeah no it's true but with the social climbing stuff too it actually makes me feel like I remember re-watching Perfect Blue when I first moved to Glasgow and like 
um, in preparation from when we were supposed to chat forever ago. And I was actually like delighted at how relevant a lot of the lessons, I think, or just the experiences like from the movie were still like, I don't know, it was almost like it was timeless in a really good way. Yeah, yeah see, I watched it with a big um go ahead where we it reminds you what oh no it just reminds me uh hi everybody welcome to agitator my name is j david osborne that's kelby losak we have el nash on to talk about 1999's <laughs> perfect blue and 2003's millennium actors go ahead sorry just thank you got there. both of those dates wrong that's okay no, Perfect Blue's 1999. Millennium Actress is 2003. I just looked it is up. Is it? Oh, wow. Uh, on the internet, fool. Nah, dog. Nah. September 12th. Oh, USA dates. Yeah, I might be yep. wrong. Yeah, it's September 12th, 2003. God damn you, Google. Yeah, Fuck. Japan Japan is two years ahead of us. The time God change is fucking wild. damn it. Oh. We, uh, we actually anyway. had somebody... Uh, in japan on the show recently and we had to like that got confusing so it was like what year is it they're like it's 2020 like damn that's fucking that's crazy that shit's just crazy y'all y'all are about to stay inside for a long time (laughs) (laughs) um by the way kelby how's how's your covid you still have covid uh maybe i don't know i think it's it's whatever it's totally fake i'm doubling down now that i've now that i'm not uh <laughs> an, an outside you don't know what you're talking about I'm like uh, i was right about everything dog now did, I got did it. rowan get COVID too <laughs> yeah he was the fucker who gave it to me mm, mm-hmm. was this the first time you'd had it i think maybe the first confirmed time that i've had it uh i i remember at the beginning of all this shit a lot of um my my friends and family like in real life circle we were all like oh did we have this because like yeah i knew a ton of people who just got crazy weird sick out of nowhere like the worst flu they'd ever had and you're like what is going on yeah 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 did you get it yeah, the, I think I got it in February 2020, like when it, everything everyone was first talking about it, because I was sick for like six weeks, like a really long time. Um, but I got it recently this year. Um, and it was like, I had a high fever and the worst, like migraine, like I thought if my migraine didn't get better, I'd have to go to the hospital because it just sucked ass. But it I just hung out till the fever broke because I was like, I just want to get better as quickly as possible. And then it was I was pretty much better within like five or so days. I had like a little lingering cough, but yeah, my fever was like 103.5. And I was like, when should I take medicine? Like, <laughs> I don't know when it's going to be too dangerous for me to like ride this out. <laughs> that That's the way to be, though, like just thug it out. Because, yeah, I, f- I feel like natural immunity is what I-, I was never concerned with it on a personal, like a personal level, just for me. Yeah. I know it's like the red flag corner of the podcasting world. But for me personally, <laughs> like I have 
a crazy immune system because I just don't ever take medicine or see the doctor or believe in anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lack of faith. That's what saves you. <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> no, I know though. Like, I don't like, I do, I will treat like fevers if it gets bad or whatever, but I do think like just trying to let your body do its thing is the like the best way that you can get over anything. Even with like Wednesday, now that she's a little older, I'm like, I watch the fevers and I'm like, if she's uncomfortable, like I will give her the medicine. But if she seems mostly in good spirits and the fever isn't too bad, I'm like, well, let's just let this ride because, you know, I want you to get better like as fast as you can. And you don't want to be giving a kid like ibuprofen all the time. Yeah, because then like it could slow that process down too. Like if they're just if they're moving about and feeling fine then you know it could rise and rise and break and then they're good yeah and then they're sick for longer and that just becomes difficult because you know we're all adults and we have jobs (laughs) yes oh my god that was the toughest part about like because rowan's been in daycare since they allowed us to put him in there and he uh was well he's three so you know, he was growing up through all that shit. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, we got to close. Come on, really? Y'all got to close every time a kid sneezes. Like, mm-hmm. what am I supposed to do? <laughs> I know it's super hard. Like, um, luckily, the daycares here, they didn't have any, like, they did, they gave zero fucks about that kind of stuff. They weren't like making children wear masks. Um, and, they were just kind of like, oh, if your kid has like a fever, just try to keep them home. Like they weren't being super insane about it. But like they are closed on Monday for some kind of bank holiday in Glasgow that I don't understand. And so even like the um, extra different kind of daycare is closed too. And so I'm just like, okay, well, I guess I'm working from home on Monday. Like I'm still working. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> like I guess I'll just handle it. Have Wednesday get a part-time job. I know. I actually, I know she needs to get a job. I actually went to what's called Poundland, which is the dollar store here. <laughs> <laughs> I will never get over that. And um, I bought like a bunch of crafts and like stickers and like pipe cleaners and stuff. And I just like hid them and she found them on Friday and I was like damn it and she's been asking me like every 20 minutes every single day if she can play with it and I'm like you have to wait till Monday and tonight I put her to bed and bless her she was like I'm so excited to go to sleep because then tomorrow I'm gonna wake up and I get to do crafts (laughs) it's so cute it's so cute oh my god so that'll save me tomorrow Hell yeah. That's amazing. Well, at American Poundland, you find a a different kind of pipe cleaner. That's funny. Oh my God. There is so much funny shit like that over here. You, okay. So when you moved to Glasgow, my first thought was like, oh, like the, like the smile. Uh, And that like, it's a town that's has a, has a, a, where they invented cutting people's faces up. Right? Oh, yeah. Isn't that what it is? Yeah. So uh, I had a friend once who was a, he was a Scottish monk, Buddhist monk, 
mm-hmm. and he uh lived in glasgow and he did nothing but just like talk shit about it uh so is it cool is it you seem to be enjoying it yeah i think that like i think from what i hear from other people is that like 20 years ago glasgow was like a really tough place like a hard place to live um and whatever the scottish government has been doing in terms of like i guess social welfare programs and that kind of thing um it must have worked because like i don't know it's great there's like so many art museums and they're all free which is like amazing um there's the transportation system is fantastic like there's like three bus stops within 10 minutes walking distance from my house and I'm in between two train stations. And even when the trains were striking, like all the train operators were striking to get better wages, it still wasn't like so difficult that like I couldn't do anything. I mean, it was a little bit annoying because you have a child and that makes it more annoying to like wait around forever for a bus. But um, I think it's just in comparison to America, it's like, for me, I'm like, this is nothing. Like when I first got here, I didn't know which neighborhoods were good and bad. And I guess some neighborhoods up north have like massive drug problems. And I called for an apartment and the dude literally was like, you sound really nice. You probably want to try and find an apartment somewhere else, like in the West End. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, because they're saying it's like rough. But I'm like, okay, where I live, like, people just shoot each other. Um, Like, rough in America is, like, vastly different, I think, from rough in Glasgow. And so I think the people who live here have this sense that it's, like, awful or that it's a shithole. But I'm just like, God, you you don't even know. Like, they don't have to pay for medicine um, because of the NHS. Like, they just have very easy access to a lot of the things that they need. And it's not perfect. But um, the food quality, like, is insane. Like, the first time I drank milk when I moved here, I almost cried. And it's just, like, basic, cheap-ass milk. It's not, like, it's milk that you would probably buy at, like, Walmart. But because it's local and because, like, their animals are healthier, it has, like, so much flavor. Like, you can taste the difference. It's just incredible. Like, everything's local. And it's just, that's just normal so yeah rough rough scottish rough might be different i mean kelby was telling me that his neighbor shotgunned somebody to death uh what was that a week ago kelby uh that one yeah that was the most recent one that was uh yeah about a week ago yeah so it's kind of like what are we talking about although knives are no joke i saw this crazy video on twitter of a dude getting stabbed in the throat and Mm -hmm. it hit his artery and mm-hmm. the fucking the arterial spray was crazy. Um, it was one of those moments where I said, "Okay, we're not doing the internet for the rest of the day." Because I did not expect to open up Twitter and see a snap film. It was just labeled as somebody had written a uh, "game over." Jesus, and I was like, "Man!" So I thought I was going to see a fight because, like, fights are fun, like World yeah. Star and stuff like that. Those are really entertaining to watch. So I was like, "Okay, these guys are going to fight. It'll be funny." And then, like, the craziest thing about it was when he stabs the guy in the neck, the guy who got stabbed looked at the blood that was just everywhere, mm. and he just he just looked confused. And yeah. then he collapsed, obviously, and it's still spraying out. And he's dead, for sure, no doubt. Yeah. Um, 
but I, that made me start thinking it gave me this weird existential thought that when you die like 90 percent of people who die i think are just confused mm. like wait what and then they're dead yeah i um i remember watching i used to watch a lot of like the wrecked threads on the chans and mm. there was one where which i i honestly can't anymore after having wednesday i feel like my level of ability to handle it has kind of changed a bit like some things i just am like i can't watch anymore even though i'm pretty like it takes a lot i think to make me feel fucked up about stuff because i'm married to like a combat veteran <laughs> Mm-hmm. you know who's like let's watch this decapitation video today or whatever you know like when we were younger mm-hmm. um but yeah there was like one where i think it was a cop like it was a dash cam of a cop car and the cop got shot and he was like he was like his brain was like stuck on repeat like doing the same shit like over and over again until he died like he was dying but his brain was just like trying to like replay the last moment or something to survive it was weird it's like wild like so he was like repeating a phrase or an action no it was an action it was an action like um like moving his hands on the steering wheel in particular way or something like that i wish i could remember he was getting unstuck from time that's what was happening like as he was dying like he was beginning to uh get actually frozen because the way that time works right is that everything happens at the same time mm. but we just mm. you know we just experience because we're three-dimensional we just experience it so like when he as he was dying that was the interface between 3d and 4d but that's that's still massively that, creepy like that yeah. that that's very disturbing to me maybe that is what's happening because i know i definitely have wondered a lot like watching people die on the internet like what is going on in like those last moments I'm always like curious like what's happening in the brain and like what they're thinking because it's so unknowable really I think it's mostly just like are you fucking kidding me are you Mm. fucking like like this because you got to think every time every one of those people who dies in these videos like okay so this is dark but (laughs) whenever I see those my first thought is like okay because I have a kid like you know, we all have kids, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. That was a kid at one point who was like toddling around trying to put Legos in his mouth. He grew up. uh, There are multiple ways to grow up in this, in these incarnations that we have. And then fast forward all the way to that day and they put their clothes on, they put their shoes on, they brush their teeth. And they were thinking about all the bullshit that we think about. Mm -hmm. Fuck. I got to fucking, I got to mop my floor or, oh God, I'm a little fucking hungover. Did I say something stupid yesterday? Whatever, whatever, whatever. And then, you know, they pull out of their driveway and they get T-boned by a semi. And then that's just it. That's it. It's fucking crazy. It's fucking so crazy. I know. I stay, oh, the rest of my life. Wish that I'd have known because I'd have kissed my my mama goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's so I, true. I know. It's so, I think it's like, it's easy to live in that kind of like ignorance, right? Like our lives are so decadent in comparison to like how animals survive that like we get to spend it thinking about the innocuous shit, like whether or not we turn the stove off or like that, or like, I don't know, whatever you're mad about in that like one moment or whatever. It's pretty brutal. 
it's like death is so so sudden it's almost like it's always such a weird thing to experience like when someone close to you or like someone you know dies too because it's like so sudden it's like they're real and they're there but then like it's just it's they're suddenly just like not it's like almost it's like almost impossible to process but you you do everyone processes it in their own way of course but it's always like it feels surreal usually i don't know yeah i still have uh my grandma my uncle and my buddy isaac's like phone numbers in my phone and it's always a little weird to scroll past it it's like because for a split second you think like oh god damn i haven't talked to isaac in a minute i wonder what he's up to and you know he's dead right (laughs) so it's fucking weird yeah it's just like doesn't seem like it should be a, a thing really but um well before we get too dark before this turns into just the the goth podcast about death um <laughs> let's talk about perfect blue first because that's the one that l knows the most about when i was watching this movie i think it's it's interesting that it takes place right at the dawn of the internet that's what's the most interesting thing to me yeah. about it that there's this fake blog that this guy's writing fan fiction about a singer who has decided to make the transition into acting. Uh, and he's sort of unhappy. Well, he's unhappy about this and he's unhappy particularly because the, the acting that she's choosing, choosing to do includes uh, like rape scenes and stuff like that. But that the whole identity thing, I think is really well-constructed uh both plot wise and just with that that first you know they're setting up the computer and she's just like what is this what what like what are we doing this is so crazy oh there's a website devoted to me and it's like this was not long ago it was 1997 thank Mm -hmm. you by the way for correcting that (laughs) like it was such a massive shift right in in how we see ourselves our identities I know. Um, I'm just trying to remember parts of the plot because it's been like a little bit. Because yep. um, I got distracted thinking about um, Serial Experiments Lane because we were talking about this is like the dawn of the internet and like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I know mm-hmm. I know. she thinks it's like quaint that she's being mimicked at first where it's this person that's like talking about her day as her and she doesn't really think anything about it and then suddenly it starts to become a little more serious when she she realizes that she's being watched more um it makes me honestly think a lot about how that's why i think it's timeless because it makes me think a lot about how i interact with the internet as well like you just sometimes get those weirdos it's like i don't know the weirdos have always existed in a way Speak on these weirdos. What weirdos are you talking about? Oh, like, it's like being, um, I mean, I guess it can happen to, it can happen to men too, but being a girl on the internet where you just get people who, it's the parasocial relationship thing where they think they know you, like she's an idol. And so people develop these like really 
cult-like feelings for her identity even though like that's not necessarily who she is or who she wants to be like she's literally trying to like become someone else and like she has this fan page of her that's like obviously doesn't like that she's trying to become this someone else like this actress you know and they think it's unsavory they they want her to still like be the pop idol so you have these people who like have these ideas of like who you are because they quote-unquote think they know you or interact with you on the internet so it can just become weird sometimes where people like they want to try to overstep boundaries or whatever like in your dms by i don't know people like to overshare or um they like try to hit on you or they say like stupid shit like I have people like randomly insult stuff I post on Instagram stories all the time (laughs) it's like and I'm just like who are you like in my you know the hidden message request or whatever I'm just like who are you like why I don't know Mm -hmm. yeah is it like a it's like negging right yeah it has to be that it has to be like saying something negative to try to elicit a response yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that makes sense I mean, I guess as a dude, I get that. It's always, it's strange, right? Because people who want to reach out to you, because I've been the person who's been reaching out before too. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, I reached out to Norman Reedus, the guy from Walking Dead and Death Stranding and stuff, because I wrote a Death Stranding book. And I just wanted him to read it. And I was crafting my message that as a three months never got responded to obviously right like it's not he's not going to respond to a twitter dm but uh it's weird right and i think people just come off as is really awkward but then there's this line where it crosses over and i have gotten this before maybe kelby has too where the over familiar thing is what you never want to do i feel like manners yeah. and and decorum exist for a reason and it's because it's really fucking weird for somebody to act like your buddies when you've never talked before. Yeah, my like, DMs hey. are like 60% that. Well, it's just... like, hey, what's up, bro? What's up, homie? What you doing? Kelly's uh-huh. like, uh, who are you? I'm like, will you stop talking like a black person? Only I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think- I think it's like, I think it's one thing to be a fan of someone's work and approach them and like reach out and that kind of thing. But it's like another like, I'm trying to think of a really good example. I think I did a reading in Arkansas once where obviously like my work has elements of sexual stuff in it. And one of the guys that was in in the... (laughs) It's so cute. It totally fucks with my mom brain. I'm like, oh, babies. (laughs) <laughs> and then my brain just just goes blank <laughs> it's so cute what is in the meeting you want to... but there was like it's so cute but there was this guy at um this reading in arkansas who like tried to make some comment about him paying me for my book and then um like only four dollars for my book and then like getting sexual favors for it or something like ridiculous like that where I was like that's obviously like a boundary and sometimes you do get people like that who they think that you're the person in your stories and so they they do think they know you or whatever I guess I'm rambling about it now but it's like that kind of thing where it's like you have fans and then you have people who are like oh I think I 
It's like people who love, for example, K-pop, like K-pop fans, like how they obsess or people who love Harry Styles, how they like just obsess about everything he does and they think they know him on that deep level and they're like in love with him. It's like that stuff. That's where it's like, that's too much. Yeah. I I had one real life experience with that where at a, at a reading, I got wasted and I don't remember like what exactly it was that I was performing or whatever but I was having fun it was all lighthearted, having a good time I go to the bar and this chick is like I just want you to know you think nobody sees you but I but I see you I'm just like yeah. what the fuck are you talking about she's trying to get you into a cult bro that was that was like the next thing you know you'd be on a ranch in Montana somewhere like Kanye but not cool like that like different yeah Here thankfully I, I <laughs> yeah and i had friends around watching me to pull me outside but (laughs) yeah so that's yeah it's tough right it's um i just feel like i wish people could be normal I, i i feel like simps in general are one of the cringiest elements of twitter and there are simps of all stripes there are simps that just you know kind of comment on everything that you do and it doesn't Mm. necessarily have to be creepy but they're just always there um there's simps who go the negging route and then there's the simps who are just a bit more overt about it but like i don't know i mean i feel like i just wish people could be normal that's what i that's what i think i've heard stories like the one that you're talking about from many people and uh I'm just like, damn, it's not, it's not hard to just talk to people. Maybe it is for some people though. I don't know. I'm really on the, I'm, I'm wishy-washy about this whole thing. I don't know. I kind of feel uh, for the people who have to deal with people like this, but then I can't help but feel kind of bad for them. Cause like, what is their, what is that person's brain? Like, you know, mm-hmm. like the person who talked to you in Arkansas might just be a scumbag probably is. Cause that's, like over the top right but a lot of the like the simpy stuff i don't know i just feel bad like mm. are you lonely like do you need a friend mm-hmm. uh it's like that movie the tfw no gf do you see that one uh i might have if it's older it sounds familiar it's like the incel movie right the incel yeah. documentary and uh i don't know i don't know it's all complex but at the end of the day i'm yeah. just like but at the same time, like if somebody were to DM Rios the things that you're talking about, I'm like, okay, so like, what's the address, right? Like, we've got a, you know what I mean? When it yeah. when it hits when it hits close to home, it's different because yeah, I don't know. I know. It's like the ideology versus actual real life. Yeah, I know. It's actually like, even though I hate the way that um, the big social media platforms like censor a bunch of shit, I do like that there's like filtered message things now, like or hidden requests or whatever, like you can choose who can send you messages and that kind of thing, because it really does like filter out a lot of the shit and then you end up like not having to deal with it like on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just I wonder if it's like just the nature of like having a career where you're being seen, like just to bring it back to Perfect Blue, because in Perfect Blue, she develops like the persona like of the pop idol. 
and then people project onto that and that's kind of what isn't that what people do with fame like they project onto it like isn't that why like the Kardashians are as large as they are because people project this idea that they could be like that they relate to it in some way you know what I mean mm-hmm. so I don't know I was just thinking a lot about that because of the movie like how because she changes it people get upset with her for it like people get upset because then they can no longer relate or something like that like there's some kind of like personal shit that happens in the fan that they get i don't know it's that song uh stan by eminem yeah it's like we were supposed to be together yeah by the way this is like so you know the the like phrase stan like the stalker fan thing yeah yeah okay so eminem wrote that song like fucking forever ago is that related to that was like the phrase stalker fan as stan like around back then i, was I thought that's where it came from i thought that i that's... didn't know was it i don't think he meant it as a, a like conjoining those words together i know like because i didn't see it being used until years later but yeah i did think it was a reference to that is what i always thought because of that song like you know it kind of embodies the pen the penultimate obsessed uh psycho fan yeah i was just wondering about that i was thinking about that the other day because i haven't seen i didn't see people use the phrase stan until like years and years later either it probably became a meme right like it just became a meme and then people are like oh we'll just call them stands and yeah. then the um the mashup came after that came later yeah that's that probably is what happened that makes sense convenient yeah it is convenient <laughs> it's convenient <laughs> so what are some of your other takeaways from perfect blue because i want to draw a few parallels between perfect blue and millennium actress uh, okay. because satoshi khan has uh a big focus right like a, a lot of his movies contain very similar elements the you know the breakdown between reality and fiction mm-hmm. uh older jealous women is a big thing right like you have that in perfect blue and you have that in millennium actress it's mm-hmm. it's it's a key plot point in perfect blue but it's kind of tangential in millennium actress but i'm just wondering like when you why does perfect blue resonate so much like what's your what's your takeaway from the movie um my takeaway or takeaways maybe plural yeah i think the part that i loved about it like the first time i watched it was like just watching this girl struggle with herself and her identity um i and like she it's almost like she disappoints people around her by trying to pursue what she wants but she questions herself at every level to the point that she like literally feels like she's losing her mind which is really relatable um and then I think the other things that really affected me were the simulated like rape scene which I feel like is really like almost transgressive for the time period and in general, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like, there's yeah. just some kinds of, like, scenes in movies and that that, like, 
you you sometimes are like you know why the like the scene is happening and like it's meant to have a specific emotional effect but then you're also like yeah that's really like tough like does the scene need to like as a, a writer you're always like does the scene need to be there to like move the story forward and it's like yes also like what is this communicating so I always like thought about that too uh yeah because that's what breaks her brain right yeah. that's what makes her go crazy so it's sort of the whole movie hinges on on that and I thought it was really well the one thing I really like about that scene um is the actor who's fake raping her mm-hmm. like a like a, keeps apologizing that was really interesting it was this mm-hmm. weird uh like something you wouldn't expect to see in a scene like that I feel like maybe this is me making assumptions but I feel like it like from a Japanese culture sense it did make sense to me where this person is actually just trying to like he's like I have a job to do like we all have our jobs to do but also he's like I'm really sorry for like in the in the real world outside of the acting like he's like very much reserved and it's not like he necessarily like wants to make her feel violated like that kind of thing right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I don't know mm -hmm. yeah but you but like what I mean is that in a rape scene I'd just never seen a rape scene in a movie where somebody was apologizing. I get what you're saying about yeah. the Japanese culture, but whenever there are these juxtapositions, I think that's what makes scenes like that really kind of pop. Because, you know, yeah. you're used to seeing like the Hills Have Eyes or Last House on the Left or whatever. You have like brutal rape scenes or... But uh, in this one, I don't know, that like little bit of kind of touching humanity <laughs> makes the scene yeah. worse. <laughs> yeah somehow worse I love how juxtaposition can heighten certain elements um mm-hmm. in art mm-hmm. I, I was actually recently thinking about that because I just finished Wetlands um by Charlotte Roche have you heard of that mm-hmm. I've heard of it but I haven't read it does it have an alligator on the cover it's an avocado actually oh, <laughs> I don't know then... I might have the UK cover so <laughs> I don't know anymore what they look like <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's yeah. right. They're, they're yeah. both they're both they're both green. So I, yeah, I was, yeah. I was I I would I'll give myself points for being close. Hey, avocados kind of have mouths too. You know, you have to open the whole thing. A little bit. I'm <laughs> yeah. It's like the pull quote for the episode. Avocados kind of have mouths if you think about it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, sorry. What was it? Yeah, but in that the book has really clever juxtaposition because it's really like hygienically disgusting um but the narrator is like this nubile 18 year old that likes to fuck all the time so it's just a very clever way of like heightening the elements of like both like both of those elements together so I don't know I think just it's a clever art technique if it can be done with finesse where it's not obvious right right? it's not obvious that's the reason you we know. talked about this in our episode about In the Miso Soup, which has a serial killer. And uh, Ryu Murakami's style is so, like you were saying, clinical and straightforward. But there's a, a massacre scene where the serial killer uh, murders like six people in a karaoke bar. And there's, there's a part where he basically has sawed this woman's head off to the point mm-hmm. that she's a Pez dispenser. And he cuts her ear off, folds it, and tries to like put it in her pussy Mm -hmm. and but it's like described 
so casually that when we were talking about it in the episode, I was like, this is the most disturbing. One of our guests actually, uh, Zach, shout out to Zach. He was like, that shit made me cry. Cause it was so really? funny, which would, it would make it worse if it was overly described. If you were really trying to, this is what I tell my editing clients all the time. I'm like, I get that you're trying to say something fucked up here, but it'd be so much more fucked up if you acted like it wasn't. Cause that's what makes the shit weird. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. Like with transgressive fiction and that kind of stuff too. I don't remember who I was talking to about this recently where like sometimes I just hate when people like some people, they try too hard to make it shocking. Mm -hmm. Um, And it almost, it does give it a level, like a level of like that. I, I don't believe you. I don't believe this is happening. I can't be in the reality of the book. This is obviously written by someone who's never experienced violence before. And I don't like that because when I'm reading something or experiencing like some kind of art, I want to believe like in the world of it. Like I don't, I want to be taken for a ride, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that kind of like try hardness is like, yeah, it has to be done with a kind of like finesse. So I get what you're saying. What book is this that you were talking about? It's called In the Miso Soup the by Rio Murakami. Yeah. 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 It's um it's about a tour guide in Japan whose new client is this American whose skin is made out of some kind of weird metal alloy. It's never really explained. But the tour guide is base or the tourist is basically a serial killer. So mm. it's three nights of them hanging out and it getting progressively more intense uh until it leads up to that's basically the only scene in the book that has that level of violence but the whole thing is yeah so fucking intense it's so wound up but you wouldn't know it if i if i posted any random paragraph from that book you would say like i don't i don't get it like what's the except for the you know the killing stuff but other than that it wouldn't it wouldn't come forward because i don't know it's like when people are trying to describe, you know, a murder or something, it'll be like, you know, the, the blood gushed <laughs> out of their neck and, you know, sprayed it. And they'll use all these, uh, you know, Lovecraft words and shit, the mm-hmm. Eldritch blood, whatever. And uh, <laughs> the Eldritch that's blood. <laughs> the Eldritch blood, which is a cool, it, it is two words that are cool together, but like, um, I don't Cellar know. door. So, that's that's blood. my that's my cellar door is Eldritch blood. Eldritch blood. Yeah. <laughs> but uh all right. Well yeah. go ahead. Oh, I say um no, I get what you're saying about that. Um it's curious that you mention it as clinical because it's about a serial killer like it makes sense because isn't there that idea that like serial killers like they don't care. Like they don't feel empathy. That's why they like do what they do so they wouldn't necessarily be attached to it in that way I like um I wrote this book (laughs) I'm like wait why am I talking about this where like my agent said that he didn't (laughs) feel connected to the main character at all and I was like well the main character is a fucking psychopath like you wouldn't feel connected (laughs) to the character so I'm glad you don't but it's like that kind of thing where like I actually hate this about serial killer movies like fiction and stuff like that where like mm-hmm. they make them so much more like emotional and like 
than they actually are. Like, I love Dexter as fiction, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, as like a TV show that you just watch, like turn your brain on. But like, for me, the believability is so stupid because I'm like, I just don't feel like that's actually like he wouldn't murder that like an actual serial killer wouldn't be that way. I don't know. I'm picky about that, like the psychology of killing and like that kind of stuff in art because I feel like it's so Mm -hmm. hard to like mimic, I guess, you know? Yeah. Japanese movies get this really well, though. I think a lot of Japanese movies that I've seen get this type of psycho killer, right? Which is that they actually just sort of live a boring existence and they don't have very much to, they're not Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not even necessarily like, always smart. <laughs> no, they're just like us. And that's what makes it so fucking creepy is that yeah. they're just us, but they're totally cool with like cutting your head off and sewing it to your butt or something, you know, like it's, it's a really hard thing, I think, for people to wrap their heads around, which is why it's fascinating when it's done correctly. It's mm-hmm. like, but wait, but what's the thing, you know, sometimes you have uh, people who are abused as kids and they you know something broke in their brain but sometimes you don't sometimes that's just a thing that they do Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's like more space in Japanese culture like there's a market for it of that like of the characters being written that way which is why it's like able to be done well whereas like in America like we're very weird I'm like not me anymore but like America (laughs) is very puritan in nature so every time like you do have a bad guy there a has to be a reason and b they have to be punished for it you know where it kind of like i don't know it takes some of the like horror out of it in a way i don't know yeah because it's like what's the reason that this guy just you know disemboweled you know 18 teenagers or whatever it's like well why did i just buy Reese's ice cream and eat half of it yeah because it was fucking cool uh and I liked doing it (laughs) I I don't know that's it yeah oh did you ever did you ever hear about the um the scream killers did you ever hear about that this was Mm -mm. like you did Mm -mm, mm -mm. oh okay so this was like right around I think it was 2006 or 2007 where these two kids um these two kids were just like they were like filming themselves with like their video recorder and they like literally wanted to they were like super into like horror movies and all this kind of shit and they really just wanted to mimic the scream movie like they wanted to kill someone like in the scream movie and they 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 totally did it um And, like, you kind of think about, yeah, like, the motivations behind it and all that kind of stuff. And it's, like, when you look at it, there really isn't none. Except maybe the guy, like, one of the guys, like, had a crush on the girl that he wanted to murder. But even the way that they had recorded themselves, like, talking about it and, like, planning everything out, it was so, like, yeah. Like, they're just, I don't know. It's like you would like build a fucking like cool like Hot Wheels obstacle course or some shit and be like, yeah, that's fucking wicked, you know? Yeah, like they yeah. literally just talk about it just like that. I think it would be awesome if somebody could write a, a serial killer book that was kind of like like this, that would just basically be like, why do they do it? Because it's cool. You know, my when I was a kid, me and my buddies would watch Steven Seagal movies and 
James Bond and shit. And we would go out into the woods and, you know, shoot each other with fake guns that looked super real. Totally wouldn't be cool today. But, Mm -hmm. and it's like, why? It's just, I don't know. Cause we fucking, why do we think that that's cool? Right. Why do we think that James Bond is cool when he's snapping people's necks and shooting them in the head? I'm not saying that it's not cool because it is, but, but why? Right. I mean, I think as writers, we have a knee jerk reaction against the kind of Christian right uh, assessment of violence in movies, because I grew up with people trying to ban Marilyn Manson and rap yeah. records and movies. And so I have a knee jerk reaction against that where it's like, nope, it, this has no effect on people whatsoever. But as I've gotten a bit older, I'm like, well, to be fair, it, maybe it kind of does. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a little bit of it. Maybe we're being a bit disingenuous by saying there's literally no effect that these, uh, that these movies or songs or video games have on people. I don't think they should be banned. They should still exist, but mm-hmm. we got to be real. I mean, there are some people who just watch, I mean, the right right now, uh, their two biggest kind of avatars are Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner 2049 and uh, Christian Bale in American Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> some people interpret movies differently and it, it is what it is. It's a, it's collateral damage. It's mm. just what happens i guess i'm so yeah i'm so curious about it too because like on one level with movies like in real like you know person movies not like animated movies um it's almost like i get tired of watching violence movies because it's too clean like i'm like that's not what it actually looks like but then at the same time if you watch stuff that is just like plainly brutal like then you're like okay this is too much like this isn't entertaining there's like a a there's like a fine line like in terms of i guess it depends on like your aim and who you're trying to entertain and artistically like what you want with it but Mm -hmm. it's yeah it's hard because it's like right the art the artist like makes the art but then are are they responsible or should we be like limiting what kind of art they make because someone felt inspired in a way that they weren't necessarily like (laughs) intending to be inspired to do like Mm -hmm. murder a movie theater full of people or something I don't know I wonder if back in ancient Egypt there was a guy who looked at some hieroglyphics of you know Anubis weighing a person's heart and he's like that looks incredible. I'm going to cut someone's heart out and weigh it. That seems like such a good, like a good idea, like a cool thing to do. Probably not because, you know, people lived different lives back then. Like we all have this I don't know. thing. I don't know, mm-hmm. man, because I am learning much more about medieval torture than I'd ever learned before, because it's like, there's like museums and shit here that show you mm-hmm. the things that people used to do just just for like reasons of like punishment like jail or whatever Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. is fucking insane it's like brutal like absolutely like it is the most like I'm so glad like I have never been aware of a life that I've lived in that kind of past because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's more than just like chopping a hand off or like stealing bread it's literally like they will slowly rip you apart for days on end Like putting forceps in the vagina and slowly cranking it until you just break, you just split. Um, Right. 
And like they do that with the mouth too, right? Like the the saw, yeah. the saw, the first saw, the iconic saw image is very similar right. to torture devices. No, and you're hundred percent right. It but, doesn't snap open quickly. It literally is like slow, like with your yeah. mouth. They just like open it, and that was for, um, I think that was for women who like talked back to their husbands or some crazy shit. Like they would literally put this device like on their head. Well, it's they'd like, had enough. They'd had enough. <laughs> they were just done. But no, but what, no, I think you're right. But what I mean is basically that because their lives were full of, you know, human violence sacrifice already. and shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like That's, it was already a pretty violent yeah. world. Yeah. Right. It's kind of one of those things where it's, uh, you know, like when the, uh, like Columbus and stuff came over to America, uh, or maybe like Cortez is a better example. It's like there are no heroes in this story. And the, like, the history is long and complicated and it's very brutal to the people who, you know, lived here originally. Mm. But at the same time, I mean, like, they were just cutting people's hearts out daily. Just, it was just a revolving door of people getting their chests ripped open and their hearts pulled out. So it's like, that's just kind of, I really do think that we live in this insanely privileged time in yeah. history where we don't have to deal with that because our ancestors did it's in our blood memory you know like yeah. we no matter who you are or your background or whatever you'd go back not too far surprisingly close to where we are now and you know your great 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 grandpa or grandma would have been totally cool with the uh, the no, well, maybe not the grandma, but the grandpa would have been totally cool with the no talk, the no talk backsies saw device, right? <laughs> it would have been like, oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, that, that makes that yeah. makes a ton of sense. Maybe that's why we like love to make media, you know, that can be gory and violent and that kind of thing. It is curious. I don't know. Yeah, it's an ancestral memory of like this thing that still exists that you have to express in some way, you're not going to actually, the world's not full of that kind of torture anymore, but it still exists. And I, I think that's kind of like a lot of what millennium actress is about, even though millennium actress is extremely lighthearted and optimistic. Um, it's still this time as a circle, like, thin veil well or no veil relationship between like art and the artist and the whole like discussion of responsibility and whatever is kind of within that I think it just nullifies the whole argument of like putting blame or anything it's like well no like the art and the artist aren't necessarily separate things like they're both going to exist like they're they're have they're both happening at the same time it's not like it's like well so and so was inspired to live a life of crime because of grand theft auto is awesome it's like well yeah but i mean <laughs> those are just <laughs> well yeah <laughs> that's just gonna happen <laughs> yeah so what is the plot to millennium actress since i haven't seen that one so Millennium Actress is, uh, there's these documentary filmmakers who are investigating the life of a retired acting legend. Like she's basically 
who would she be? Would she be like Julia Roberts? She's Julia <laughs> Roberts or Catherine Hepburn or something. She's like, um, I think it was actually based. Uh, yeah, it, it was actually based on the lives of these actresses, Setsuko Hara and Hideko Takami. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's this like, one of the documentary, uh, the director, basically, he has this key that he wants to bring to her that like sparks all these memories um and the whole movie is them going down memory lane with her but not in a flashback kind of way and you know in a satoshi khan paprika kind of way where they are in her living room filming an interview with her and then they're in feudal japan filming themselves as feudal Japanese people running from what they're reliving the stories of her film career Mm. that that all progressed through this sort of like uh her outside of becoming an actress she had run into this guy who she fell in love with who is this uh mysterious painter but he was like on the run from the authorities because uh, he was a revolutionary or something. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, she saves him from authorities who are looking for him and, you know, strikes up this like one time, just intimate moment, not sexually, intimate, but just like this, like one time beautiful moment with him. And is for the rest of her life obsessed with him. She mm-hmm. becomes this big actress but like the through line is her trying to find her true love Mm -hmm. and this key is a gift that he gave to her and he said that it it opens the most important thing in the world and she says don't tell me i'll figure it out tomorrow it'll be my homework assignment but she never sees him tomorrow so the whole thing is like this relation this full like this dilation of time and living for something and also leaving a legacy it all starts like sort of spiraling into you know inward on itself oh my god this kid just came in here with my jokes let me take over Ow. i can i can get it from here yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay yeah so Kelby did a, a good a good job at that actually i mean that's pretty much it there are a few things about millennium actress that really stood out to me Satoshi Khan has this amazing ability to uh, not concern himself with uh, chronology or mm-hmm. making sure that the viewer understands where everything's going because mm-hmm. these characters of the actress and the documentary filmmakers, they weave themselves through this kind of tapestry of, of time jumping and movie jumping. So, you know, we'll be in feudal Japan and they're there with their cameras and they're real, like they're affecting the environment that they're in, mm-hmm. but then that will go to a film set and then we'll get a bit of the actress's life where she, you know, she's being seduced by this director who's mm-hmm. kind of conniving or she's dealing with this older actress who uh, is jealous of her youth. Um, and then we'll jump to her being on a rocket ship and then back to World War II era Japan and then in the then she's in the 70s and she's standing on a beach and all of it the, the through line of all of it is that it's all real right it's not mm-hmm. necessarily supposed to be interpreted as like you know this is it is impressionistic but it's not um 
you're not supposed to like really try to get your bearings. You just give yourself yeah. over to the Yeah, music, I like right? that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And basically uh, at the end, we find out that the guy who was chasing this painter initially uh, actually caught him and killed him like right after they had their their moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was like chasing a dead person. Nobody lets her know. Um, and then she dies at the end, just of old age, some illness or whatever. And I really liked this. It was like, basically she says, uh, it doesn't matter if he was real or not, or if he was alive or not, because it was the pursuit that mm. made my life worth it. And yeah. so like, so Khan, uh, Khan does that, right? Like he, he has these, these themes that come out, they're performed in the movie, but you know, her single-minded pursuit of this guy um, and there's a lot of like really sad shit too, where like she's losing her memory. She can't remember his face anymore. Like I'm a sucker for shit like that. Anything where people lose their memory, I, I'm like, fuck, I don't want to do, I don't want to lose dying. Okay. But losing my memory, not so okay. Um, but like, it really has something to say, I think about the artistic process in general and that, through all of these movies that she's in, whether, you know, she's encountering a witch in feudal Japan or flying in a rocket ship, like her quest to find this dude is the through line. And I think that's saying something about artists that we're all kind of just writing the same book over and over again, or making Mm -hmm. the same movie over and over again. So it's a great movie. I really liked it. It's, it's, It's good. I really like that. It makes me actually think a little bit of um, Mulholland Drive in a way where like it isn't about it isn't I don't know how to describe it where the linear the the linear nature of it is like not necessarily what's important and you don't even necessarily have to sit there and work to like piece it together. You're just having the experience itself. Yeah, exactly. The experience is the that kind of those like uh those blogs and forums that have been like we solved Mulholland Drive this is what it is it's that's it's totally the wrong way to watch that movie um because it's exactly that it's about the it's about experiencing it in this way because that's that's how that world is and that's how the vibe is supposed to be it's not like you know, because the other way, piecing it together, trying to be like, well, what's the correct order of this? It's kind of going back to the argument of like, does Grand Theft Auto make people kill hookers? Mm. Uh, yeah. It, it's like, no, y'all are not getting, y'all aren't getting it. Both like the, these things are just going to happen. And the that experience is the human experience it's not this uh you know the psychoanalyzation of it is uh i don't i kind of know what i'm trying to say but i don't really know what i'm trying to say basically like i guess it's i mean it kind of even echoes the sentiment of the movie which is it's not about like where she ended up at the end but like the actual journey of it and kind of like I think 
when it comes to things like David Lynch's movies or things that aren't linear in general, like the best way to approach it is not sitting there and trying to glean like what the the meaning of it. Like you literally just kind of have to like let it wash over you in a way. And like, I don't know. It makes no, sense like because that. if you're sitting there, yeah, like if you're sitting there and you're trying to be like, okay, where are we now? Then you're probably also too concerned with thinking like, what is the artist trying to say to me? And then you'll get find yourself like getting frustrated or whatever, rather than just like sitting there and experiencing it the way that you might experience a song where you're like, you're just yeah. in it. And that's the environment right. of your mind for yeah. like a few moments. Yeah. Yeah. Songs are the best at that where you just, you just vibe right? David Lynch has a story that he tells in his biography about being a kid, uh, I think in Idaho, I want to say, might be wrong about that, but he's in the suburbs, it's the 50s, and he's riding around on his bike with a couple of friends, and it's nighttime, it's the streetlights have just come on, and they pull up to this tree line, and they see this, this naked woman, who's all what like very pale, extremely pale woman walk out of the woods and then walk down the street. And he said that that image is basically what all of his movies are about <laughs> is that one moment that he's been trying to articulate for his entire film career. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just, I wonder about that, you know, like what, do you have an image like that? Like a, like a, like a, a thing that you're trying to articulate with your books? That's a good question. Um, Yes, but I think sometimes it changes and I'm not always acutely like aware of it. Like, I think what happens is like I get a particular feeling and that feeling is kind of linked to an image that's like, almost like ominous and hegemonic inside of my mind and so then I'm thinking how do I turn this whole thing into like a particular like contained novel so I think maybe yes and maybe like in the future you know we'll all learn that it was the same image all along because sometimes you write about shit and you're like I don't even know that I'm you look back on it five years later and you're like, oh, fuck, like I was really in this shit with that. <laughs> like you don't realize like how much you're actually like exercising in a way. And so you like look at it. Um, but yeah, I think so. I don't know. I don't know what the image would be exactly if there was like the singular one. Do you have an image, Kelby? Yeah, there's a couple that spring like to mind of. I've- I'm always just trying to convey the vibe of like uh, one is very about this place, like what it's like living here and seeing things like you go down to the jetties and there's dude with like fresh Jordan, like fresh clean out the box Jordans and like hoodie in the middle of July and gold chain. And he's out catching fish like he got swagged out to go catch fish (laughs) and that is one of the things that like sticks on an aesthetic level to me like that kind of I don't don't, that just kind of juxtaposition but then there's also uh my relationship with my cousin who 
we no longer talk and never will again but he uh we grew up like brothers and then there was one moment in our adult lives where i realized that he would destroy me and wouldn't he's one of the one of these people who like could just doesn't give a shit it like there's no uh compassion or whatever like you know we're in a truck going to this place and i know it's about to be some like shit that we shouldn't be getting into and i mean he's just telling me how he's going to use me as a human shield basically when shit pops off and i'm like like uh we've had 20 years history together and 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 then you can just tell me some shit like that. Like, mm-hmm. so there's th- those two things men aren't necessarily always what I'm like, like you said, L, like it, it rotates, but like sort of anything else that I could give an example of, they're pretty much wrapped up in those, in those mm-hmm. two. What about you? Do you have an image? No. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> no, I mean, I probably do. Um, let me think. I think that, uh, oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I really have to think about it because, like, you guys, I, I have three or four, but I'm really interested in paring it down to the one uh, you know, monolithic, legendary, mythical image, like, right. which is, the I don't have the, the, yeah, woods. I don't have the naked woman. Exactly. I don't have that. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, mine is probably, ah, no, it's, it's not going to sound good. Cause it's just like experiences and it's the same bullshit mm-hmm. experiences that everybody goes through in their twenties. Like my big one is uh, when we would order, speed off of the silk road it was all these analogs of speed right that like weren't really speed it's like mdmc and 2ci and 2cb and shit like that but like one time we ordered mdmc but they sent us something called mdpv which is uh like way 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 stronger than mdmc mm-hmm. so we we put them in the little niacin capsules and took them and we were awake for five days oh, and um, i uh we, we put blankets up over all the windows. And this is in the shittiest part of the shittiest town in Oklahoma. Um, so we're in a crack house and we have the windows covered up with blankets. And I remember the specific image of my friend Susan uh, holding a rag and like trying to say the word rag, but she couldn't, right? She'd like lost language, right? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a very solid image for me but at the same time I mean like that that incident happened after my first two or three books even came out you know so maybe that's what I'm writing about now but uh at the time I don't fucking know I mean I don't know where that shit came from Mm -hmm. I think I could probably whittle it down to one specific image in my mind but I don't want to talk about it because if I talk about it, I might not actually write the book. And I'm very superstitious Fair. about that. 
it's good to be superstitious. That, yeah, that yeah, definitely. True. Yeah, don't <laughs> talk about it. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not worth it. It's not worth yeah. it for the ag- the agitator podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking with someone very recently, where she was very excited to tell me about her like book idea, and I literally like stopped her, and I was like, "Don't." tell me like I was like do not tell me (laughs) like I was like because you should actually write the book don't tell me about it just write it first yeah yeah I think that telling people about stuff works if you do stuff collaboratively I mean it has to because you have to communicate yeah but if you're working on a solo thing and you tell somebody about it you fucked up you're done that book Mm -hmm. just just shelve it it's over Mm -hmm. um and then, um, so there's that, there's that, that, that kind of, that key image. And then the last thing that I wanted to talk about that had to do with Millennium Actress was actually Satoshi Kon's uh, filmmaking style and the fact that he's mm. so good at transitioning seamlessly between uh, reality and fiction. Yeah. And the way that I thought about it though, because we're all writers on this particular podcast I think a lot about my editing clients and how most of them are writing movies. You can tell that they've watched a lot of movies and they're basically just writing those movies, but you watch movies like perfect blue or millennium actress and you realize, okay, this, this doesn't work as a book. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get y'all's opinions on what are the, because Kelby and I are kind of working on a manifesto. And I, I want to pick your brain about this. Um, mm-hmm. What are the unique elements of books that can't be replicated? The way that uh, Perfect Blue is based off of a novel. And famously, Satoshi Khan said that he never read the novel <laughs> because yeah, he, yeah. He, he just didn't care. He was like, uh, yeah, the, somebody asked him about the title. He was like, yeah, that was the name of the novel. But uh, I don't really know. I don't know what the book was about, so I don't know what the title <laughs> means. Um, but in terms of novels, and then thinking about David Lynch or Satoshi Kon or uh, you know any of these other like Hodorowsky, like any of these other filmmakers, um, what is it that books can do? Because I, I have, and I'll stop talking, I promise. But like this, uh, I have this feeling that people genuinely do like reading. They read Twitter all fucking day. They read Facebook all fucking day. Like people read stuff, they read words, but they don't read books as much as I think we could all agree that we would like them to. So so what what can books do that movies can't? I think that they can do two things. One is that I think they can totally create the fictive dream state in a really effective way, like as long as you have an attention span and they can be more immersive than a movie can be because um your mind is literally drawing to concepts inside of it that it is relating to like you're you know what I mean um like instead of seeing for example like an actual picture of a girl on the tv when like in wetlands just because that's the most recent one I finished in wetlands when the narrator describes herself as an 18 year old girl you know, my mind goes to concepts. It's, con- it's constructed of like what 
that would look like rather than like what is being shown to me like physically and in that way I think it creates a deeper sense of relations so you can get more drawn into like the emotions of that character like you have more psychic closeness with that character than I think you can have with movies sometimes because um just because of like physical differences or environmental differences or what have you unless right like you explicitly really relate to a specific character like in a movie because of the similarities or something yeah yeah does that I make fuck sense with that. yeah 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 a hundred percent yeah i was just thinking of like reading uh well, we recently read coin locker babies and it spans like it's a big almost 600 page novel that spans mm -hmm. from uh infancy of these characters to adulthood and uh it's one of those things that like the scope of it actually has been portrayed in film before and stuff like boyhood or whatever but like the things that actually go on like the dilation of time within one paragraph of how you can explain a moment from a specific perspective of this character and how they feel how they choose to describe this moment like so you're placed in it with them at the same time reference how it calls back feelings from the past of like this thing that you also went through with them or maybe something that happened off the page that you don't so like you can dilate time in these crazy ways that uh you, you can't do on film because you can't really show that. And like the reader is able to just relate because you've, you've lived life. Like, you know, you know, you know what kind mm -hmm. of baggage mm -hmm. that you bring to something and you know your own feel. So like you can understand the concept of like uh, having all this kind of history wrapped up in one moment and books can actually kind of do that with like in just a sentence have like, presence and historical baggage at the same time mm -hmm. yeah that's awesome yeah no both of those are really Hello. i love the um i love Hello. the psychic closeness i hadn't thought about it like that but that really is what it is i mean it seems so obvious once you said it hell but mm -hmm. you are in you can get in people's heads yeah that's the only medium that you can you can't do that with painting or music or film there's always that bit of detachment in those you mediums, can but yeah but. yeah and I was gonna say like you can I get excited talking about this because it's like I think everyone there's probably debate about this actually but lots of people maybe not everyone has like that internal monologue and like Constance. when you're a writer and you're reading you feel how your internal monologue can get influenced by what you're reading so that has to happen with like readers too and that's I think yeah like the psychic closeness part is why I love writing in first person and why I sometimes hate to read like not all th third person is bad but I do sometimes hate it if it's not done well or if it's too clinical at times because like you lose some of that unless stylistically it's really good and I think that's when style comes into play you can really start to play with someone else's like internal monologue like in their head as well you know yeah it's like mind control you're getting it you're burrowing into someone's brain <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's really yeah that's cool I um 
I've always avoided internal thoughts in my books because I was on this minimalism streak for pretty much every book that I've written. But I I started reading a lot more in the past few years. And I suddenly realized that, oh, literally the thing that makes books cooler than movies. Well, I shouldn't say that because I, I like words a lot. I like the way that words look. It's uh, I find them very, like if they're put together well, what yeah. you're talking about in terms of style, I get a little, you know, charge out of cool words put together. But in terms of its presentation, yeah, getting inside of people's heads is the big thing. But it's also really scary because I don't do that very often. So you feel like, well, this isn't really what would be inside someone's head. But then you have to think, okay, but yeah, but it's a, it's, it's a book. It's not real. So, you know, you have a little bit of artistic liberty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because um, like earlier talking about, right, like the way words sound or look, it's almost like. I, you kind of like wonder like when it comes to style you know some people like prefer style and they're and they're like you know style above everything or whatever I almost wonder like what is it that makes certain syllables or certain sounds like so compelling to create style like it's so it's definitive that style exists but being able to break down like the explicit like rules of why certain syllables like sound good in the head it's almost like trance work like that you're going into and trying to like use specific syllables to like affect the way someone thinks in an artistic way it's fucking weird do you guys do you do either of you do you do either of you ever feel like you're in you're like on a wave when you're writing there's this corny thing that people say where it's like i don't know i was just channeling it it wasn't really me but that's kind of true too when I'm in the groove of writing, I, it's a feeling that doesn't exist anywhere else where I, I really do feel like you're just, you just, you've caught the rhythm, right? You've caught the rhythm of the text and you're sort of just like, it's just kind of yeah. coming out and yeah. it's good. Like, like most of my shit, and I know this is true of Kelby too, is like first draft or pretty close to it. Uh, because I like that, uh, I like the ugly parts and the cool parts together too. Mm -hmm. It has like an organic feeling to it that I like. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, when you're just ripping, it feels so fucking cool. (laughs) You know, it's nice. I'm not good at anything else. I'm not good at anything else. (laughs) So that's the one thing that I'm good at. And it just feels fucking cool to be in the zone. Yeah, no, I know it's addictive. It's like, you just want to live like in the world that you're building for as long yeah. as you can. It does get addictive. I get that. Um, God, I think I've been through like six or seven, maybe more drafts on this book that I'm working on. And I'm just like, I don't know. I used to be so, a one draft type of person. Yeah, I was going to ask. So like, so why? Like, why? Why seven drafts? Well, so, um, I mean, it, the first, the first three drafts were like, I did the first draft and it actually was in third person and I hated that. So then I changed it to first person. And then after that, I like added and changed some things and like compressed some characters just so it started to make more sense. Um, but then I did a couple of rounds with my agent and he was like, really like hands-on editorial. And I think trying to move Mm -hmm. the work into that more like 
American minimalist, you went and got an MFA from Columbia style of Ooh. like writing. And it did make things like when I read through it now, like kind of going through the final bits, it there's just parts that I'm just like, these are so stiff and like, these aren't words I've chosen and that kind of thing. So now that I am going through it, it's like this, I'm getting more back into the flow where I'm like, no, I want it to feel looser. Like I want it. If I want to have like a paragraph of like this bitch just in her head, like thinking about stuff, like I want to have the liberty to do that. And I don't think it makes it bad because that's what my first novel was like anyway, right. was like mm-hmm. my style. Yeah. So I'm kind of just like getting back into that where it's just a little frustrating to, cause it's some of my own stiffness too, where I just look at it and I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with this paragraph? And then I have yeah. to sit and like, be like, okay, how it's like a puzzle with no matching pieces i'm like how am i gonna get this to like how am i gonna be satisfied with this i have no idea because i've been out of it for a while like i've just been like not in in the practice of writing because of all the life stuff that's going on so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's also kind of great too like i feel like i took a long time off before we started the show and before uh well like hurricane season is like a six thousand word book that took me like two years to to be able 9, to write yeah. nine thousand whatever yeah you get dates wrong i don't really pay attention to words um <laughs> at least not the number of them but that is it is good every once in a while because it sounds like you're kind of coming back to those things that you already oh, i'm a big believer in natural talent and i think this is something that you have as well and so i'm glad to hear that you're coming back to that kind of just loose free sort of free spirit like idea about it where it's like no i'm just gonna write it how like in my style i'm just gonna do it how i do it yeah Mm -hmm. like what feels right with my like internal monologue or whatever it kind of goes back to what we were talking at the beginning too about like embracing the like inner idiot or whatever where I remember when I first started writing I definitely was that like one draft type of thing um and I miss how like free and uncaring I think and raw that things would come out and like be really good and I'm like I think for a while I was like I'm just not sure I have that anymore I do sometimes sit on stories or things for yeah like I work them over like five or six different times like trying to figure out the right thing for it um but I do miss that like ability to just be like I'm just gonna do this like thing like this one-off thing and not overthink it and I want to try to get back to that I've been trying to lately yeah my writing process is to write the draft and then put it into InDesign so it's like in a book and Mm. then I do my my typo check and my but my typo check is also my you know fixing stuff that doesn't work because shit will come out that's not great and not great in a not cool way because there's like stuff that's not great in a cool way and stuff that's not great in a not cool way so you fix all that in that one I call it the smoothing process I just smooth it out a little bit (laughs) but like uh but yeah no when you have talent right like if you read hurricane season or you read animals eat each other or something you're like okay this person's got the thing if they've got the voice they when they're writing they're on that wave that I'm talking about and they just kind of get it. I still haven't found, ironically enough, the words to describe what the thing is, like what the mm-hmm. it actually is. 
And uh, I don't know. I feel like people should be embracing that. I think that the publishing industry is caught in this death spiral where it isn't selling books and its response to not selling books is to tighten up. To be like, okay, well, we need things that are more MFA, that are more workshopped, that are that are tight. But what they're missing is that there's a whole contingent. I always bring up the example of uh, black authors like Sister Soldier or uh, Kwan, or we recently found a guy. Uh, what's his? What was his name, Kelby? Oh, the man. guy who wrote uh, "Addicted to the Abortion Clinic." Yeah, what was his I name? think. Rowan stole my phone or something. I'm, I was, something, something quells. Anyway, uh, but yeah. like those, those writers are actually selling in numbers that the publishing industry doesn't want to talk about mm. because when you read them, it's, I can tell that it's this one draft and then a smoothing process. And then the book comes out. They're not overworked. They're not workshopped there. A person gets an idea, you know, like, this, this guy whose name I can't remember uh, wrote a book called, uh, uh, he wrote, what is it? It's like Old Thoughts or something like that, but T-H-O-T-S, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's about a guy who has sex with old women. Mm-hmm. Um, or or pa- the, pastors get pussy too. That's mm-hmm. right. Put And pussy has a W, so it's like pussy. It's okay. brilliant. Like, it's like the best thing I've ever seen. But like, you can tell that he had an idea, he wrote it, and then people bought it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you just want to shake people who get too caught up in the system, like we were talking about earlier. People who want to do like the agent and the, you know, uh, and now my book is coming out three years from now, and <laughs> it'll be worked over, and they'll do some, you know, I guess marketing of the book, I guess. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they do it. Sometimes they don't. It depends on the budget, right? Like some people Mm -hmm. get the marketing and some people don't. Um, Or you can utilize this amazing technology that exists for everybody. And you can write a book in three days, smooth it out over a week, and then just release it. And I I really sincerely think that that's what will get people to read again. Mm -hmm. Once books start being cool like that again. Yeah. I think there's merits to spending a long time on something if that's what you want, like if you're happy with it, you know what I mean? Like if you're trying to find your happiness or satisfaction with it. Um, But I do think, yeah, like the publishing that the big four want is they want like mass appeal. And the thing that is unfortunate with literary fiction is like it definitely doesn't have that. But people want like the Netflix special, like you know, like, you have Netflix executives, like, going to the offices of these major publishers being, like, this is, like, what, you know, not, not, maybe they're saying, like, not saying you should acquire this, but maybe these are the things you want to consider if you, like, want to, like, you know, sell your IP to Netflix to, like, make these shows. So, naturally, the people who are making money and, like, making these decisions are going to be, like, okay, well, let's figure out what we can buy that can be turned into a six part series and hopefully like turn into more than a series or whatever. You know what I mean? Totally. I saw a tweet today. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah. No, I say it's unfortunate because you do have people like who work in the publishing industry who I don't think intend to like be a part of that world, but they all have bosses breathing down their necks to like, you know, make the numbers work. So it ends up being so like poisonous, but go on. 
Yeah, I saw a tweet today where a woman was saying, um, this is why you need to have comps for your book. And she had this, you know, 12 tweet thread about comps and how important comps were. And I put it in the group chat with Kelby and some other dudes. And I was like, can somebody please tell me what the fuck a comp even is? You know, mm-hmm. because she's really getting on the high horse about these comps. She's saying, you know, you might think you don't need comps, but that's a huge mistake. Thread. Uh, comps are this. And co- and like, so comps are just comparisons to other yeah. IP, right? Like I had no yeah. idea what a comp even was. And it's I a real read estate that term. It is a real estate term. And it's like, that is so creatively deadening. That's the whole thing that like, that's the kind of shit that makes me want to jump off a bridge, you know? Like, I just, it's like, what, what even is this? Like, what are you doing? The I know, whole it, way this shit should work is you make a cool thing and then people like it and they buy it. That's it. Yeah. It's even worse than that too, because yeah, I learned what uh, comps were when, um, when was it? Was it when I got my agent? And he told me, I can't remember how I learned about it, but um, I, at first I was like, oh, okay. So now I can teach people how to query agents. You just like pick two comparative titles and tell them that it's kind of like a mix between these two. And that helps them envision how they could market it or whatever. But it's, Mm -hmm. it's actually, it's, it's actually so much worse in the sense that like, um, when my agent was pitching this book, I couldn't choose any comparative titles that were older than like three years and like there That's is what she so... said in the thread she said that in the thread yeah. like make yeah. sure that they're less than three years old i was like what and, the fuck and that's the thing about that is that like because of the way that mainstream fiction is trending to be so bland and like not very exciting and very safe obviously for someone like me it's very difficult to find a comparative title that actually matches like what i'm writing like i wrote this book that's like coming out next summer because there are there are no fucking fiction books about this thing that i've written about like there's maybe four non-fiction like total books that i found and they were all written in the 90s and they're all fucking terribly written and published by like these weird like true crime type people like mass market mm-hmm. paper like back type people and i'm like how the fuck am i gonna find a comparative title to get penguin to buy this fucking book there (laughs) is no book that has been sold like this you know what i mean but Mm -hmm. like because i think because of that like because of how limiting it limiting it is it it obviously narrows the, the ability for the number crunchers like the marketers to see what's possible for stuff that is like right daring or experimental or transgressive or like whatever you want to call it and so right what do they do well they just stick to then what's what's safe like what isn't going to be risky or whatever right it's like so compounding Mm -hmm. it's like it's like they're creating the issue the problem for themselves on purpose and they like completely pigeonhole it so it's stupid I definitely like feel super excited about indie lit because I do think that more and more people are turning to it um to read books because everything out there by big fours is fucking boring yeah and people by the way as a addendum to that people need to not think that indie lit is just a smaller lower budget big four you know Mm -hmm. like people have to get rid of the whole idea of what it is that publishers do and what authors do and what this whole thing even is like how there's a lot so for example um 
I can use Broken River as an example. So I started Broken River in 2013 and we got a ton of traction because I could actually use social media back then to promote the books before everything got throttled and, you know, all that weird shit. But over its five or six year existence, I saw that kind of shrink, shrink, shrink down and my ability to actually sell the books without involving money became Mm -hmm. smaller and smaller, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that Broken River functions now is, uh, you know, I get writers who I think are cool. I work on their books with them. And then I go through essentially the, uh, the process so that they can publish their own books on mm-hmm. Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. And I put them in charge of their money. They're in charge of pretty much everything. Like what they're getting from Broken River is my hands on the book to kind of mold it the way that I like it. And then uh, the the brand, right? They're basically getting the brand. But it's I like don't... the vetting process of having a publisher rather than self-publishing. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. They have, I'm in the process, right? Like it's not, you know, the books that we have coming out, I've worked with uh, one of the authors for, for years on one of these books, you know? Um, but I don't have a budget for these books. And I tell them like straight up, like I don't have money. So anything that you think that I'm going to do, like I had a, <laughs> one of my guys uh, yesterday was like, Hey, can we, can we do net galley? And I said, sure. Yeah. If you want to. And then he came back and said, dude, net galley costs $600. Oh man. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it does. You still want to do it because it's like, it's his money too, you know? And he said, no, not really. <laughs> and I was like, okay, then we won't use NetGalley. But the way that Broken River functions now is like more of a collective where I'm a sort of creative director. Um, I'm not the money guy. I'm not the accountant. Uh, it's all them. But it still has a creative, holistic dimension to it that still makes it kind of cool. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's like an alternate way of thinking about how all this could work. Um, It's like a rap group or something like Wu-Tang. It's like Wu-Tang, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So anyway, David's RZA. Yeah, I'm RZA. Um, (laughs) But anyway, but there's there's other ways, too. Right. I'm just I just don't understand how you can look at something like Big Four Publishing. And we all know it doesn't work. We all kind of know the reasons why it doesn't work. And then we just keep doing it. I think it's because people want to be like the next like seven figure author. And it's the whole like temporarily <laughs> embarrassed millionaire thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know I know the seven figure authors though, and they don't have kind things to say about that. Yeah. Right? I mean, some of my really good friends have have hit the lottery in that respect. And, you know, I've been on phone Are we talking about the same friend? I wonder. We might be. I don't know. Well, we'll have to say it off the show. (laughs) 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 So I know, I know, I know two people. I know one person who it's worked out just incredible, right? Yeah. And he's like huge right now, like books in Target, like, yeah. I know the, like the numbers that he's, that he's made and it's, it's good. And then I have another friend who 
started off the same way and it just didn't, it just didn't work out. Right. So, I mean, I don't know. I feel like approaching it like the lottery is, is smarter though, you know, cause I've yeah. always said like, if, if somebody literally approached me with an opportunity, it's not like I would turn it down. It's just that it's not the, it's not my goal, you know? Like yeah. if I happen to be at the 7-Eleven, I buy a Powerball, I make, you know, 60K or whatever. Cool. Thank you, God or whoever, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not like they're buying like that NBA player who bought like 50,000 scratch tickets for the Powerball in California or whatever, and then like lost all of them. That to me seems like a foolish way to approach success in, in art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a hard balance because with teaching students, like, I'm never going to tell a student that they can't, like, have a particular kind of success because you kind of, like, can't predict it. But, like, with one, I do have a friend, like, a seven-figure friend who is in airports and everywhere. I'm pretty sure it's the same person. Yeah, it's got to be. I always talk talk about him, though, uh, in the sense that, like, when I'm talking to my students where where I'm always saying, like, the number one predictor of success is always perseverance. And then also like for some people it is, it's showing up um, in the right place, like at the right time, but like all the time. So you have to be there even when it's in the wrong time and you just have to be consistently showing up with it because that kind of seems like what happened where um, he was writing like, crime i'm trying to be very vague about it oh it's <laughs> like the same of, friend it's the yeah exact like same a lot friend. of crimes yeah, yeah a lot uh-huh, of crime uh-huh. stuff and then like lost an agent and got a new agent and was working on something completely different but like the persistence and the consistency of continually trying and like showing up if someone wasn't doing that then yeah they're never going to end up like with the opportunity like if that's what you want you know mm-hmm. but it is true also to say like it is a fucking lottery like like I fully hundred percent believed in my book prior to selling it to unnamed in my mind. I was like, I feel like this could be a big four book because of the way I wrote it. Of course, naturally what I failed to see at the time was that like people in New York don't relate to lower class, like narrators Ooh, that live in Missouri. Yeah. They don't so care either. True. They don't they care. Don't. <laughs> You know, unless it's like, you know, poverty porn or whatever, mm-hmm. which this book isn't. So it's like it's like that kind of thing that I wasn't paying attention to at the time. But anyway, you know, in my mind, I like felt that. And then when it went indie, I think there was this part of me that I kind of changed where I was like, I'm OK. Like, I I accept this. Like, it's not even a failure to me. I actually have more control and I believe in my press and I'm glad that I have a press. Um and the nice thing about it too, going with indies is that like, for me, they are like, they, they're going to, they see me as like their star author for that year or whatever. So they're going to give me a lot of attention. Whereas like, right. With like a big four, are they going to put the marketing behind it? They may just like no. give you the advance, put the book out and say, bye. And like, yeah. not do they, any they of spent that. their budget on a book about Donald Trump. They spent their whole budget on a book about Donald Trump. Because that's, that's the, that's the flagship book, right? All these presses do this too. They're literary fiction imprints. uh, They're all kind of just existing on life support while people actually buy like atomic habits and, uh, you know, 
January 6th, the expos, like they, people <laughs> buy that shit. And then, yeah. you know, you guys kind of get the, the, the trickle down and the big four. Right. But you, wait, yeah. so you're, wait, your book that's coming out next year, it's with an indie. Yeah. It's with, um, unnamed press. Oh, okay. That's a good one. That's a really nice. good one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They've been really good so far. Um, and so I'm excited just to see what will happen. So, but yeah, it's like, you know, when I was writing the book in my mind, I was like, this is going to be like the one that I end up selling to Harper Collins or like mm-hmm. whatever. Um, Cause that was like my goal. But when I quickly realized that wasn't happening, I think I just like made peace. Like I was like, it's fine. I'm actually like, I enjoy writing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I'm doing with my life. Like it's always going to be, I'm living my life and then I'm writing, whether I'm working full-time or teaching full-time or staying home with a baby or whatever, you know, like you have to enjoy the process of it rather than I think do it a hundred percent because you want to like make money or be Unnamed is really fucking good though. I mean, their books are beautiful. Yeah. I, I really, I really like what they do. Like as far as indies go, they're pretty top notch. So congrats that's a good get thank you thank you yeah I'm excited the cover is like really beautiful like the concepts they've shown me so far which is like really exciting um so I don't know when I can share them it's like a year out before it's like a year and a half before it'll be in the world Mm -hmm. so there's time (laughs) but it is it's different too right like um I do publishing takes so long now I think I've been numb to it like versus what you're saying like you can write a book in three days and then just put it out because you want it out in the world Mm -hmm. so I do kind of like miss those can you can you do both or are you like contractually obligated to to not do stuff like that no I can do both like I have my agent and I don't know sometimes I think he maybe he's like annoyed with me but I don't think that's true I think that's just because since you don't communicate all the time, you probably, I probably project things, but like gag reflex isn't, I did not sell that with my agent and then nudes. I did all those just with like Elizabeth Mm. at SFLD and then with clash, you know, because like no mainstream, no mainstream or bigger press is going to buy like a novella written, like a fucking live journal, (laughs) you know what I mean? Right. Right. That's another real one too. Um, Elizabeth Allen that's a real one that's yeah a, that's like a real that's a real person um, she's like so, female Brian Allen Carr is how yes, I yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I thought of too they're so similar but just you know different also like oh she's uh, like OG like literary world OG too like and she's really good you know yeah I mean just like I bait I tweeted this the other day but if you're a good writer, I will, you know, nobody can say anything about you in my eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel that way about, uh, you know, all these writers who who we're talking about who are really good. It's just like, yeah, no, she's just, I don't have a bad word to say. Mm-hmm. The bad words come out with itself. People <laughs> who are not good. <laughs> the bad writers. Talk bad about writers. quarterly. I'm just oh my god we're back to it yeah we we came full circle that's a perfect way to end it actually we came back yeah. with uh you know i don't you know guys uh, i don't want to disparage a prestigious 
magazine like to talk about quarterly, but uh, but fuck you guys. I'm sure their writers are good, but I wouldn't know because the only thing I ever see is like their tweets about no, living. Fuck mass. all their writers too. Fuck all their writers. <laughs> Anybody who's ever been. <laughs> This is why you have haters. (laughs) This is why I have haters, yeah, exactly.